Has anyone ever served or cared for you in such a way that it changed your life? I was 15. Uh, I had a religious background, but I didn't have a relationship with Jesus. Uh, my parents were divorced. I wanted to fit in. And like most 15-year-old guys, my decisions were affected by, in a great deal by the girls that were in attendance. And so that was what first drew me to church, right? Great motives to start off is where are the girls at? Um, but it's not what kept me there. Uh, it's not what kept me there. Uh, I had friends that went to church, but that wasn't ultimately the reason that I was drawn in. Um, I had a youth pastor that was there that was intentional and that cared for me. He helped me to see the beauty and the value of Jesus. He intentionally made time for me. He asked me hard but important questions. He was patient as I went through a variety of stages in my Christian walk as I struggled. He uh, was there when my friends died, when my mom had cancer, and I, I saw in him not perfection, but I saw a genuine desire to love and to serve people for Jesus' sake. Now, he didn't do anything special. He wasn't the funniest person or he wasn't the best speaker, but he had a conviction that serving other people for Jesus' sake is what matters, and he gave himself to that. God used him to rescue me, praying in the side of his, in his car on a Sunday morning after church to begin to follow Jesus. He used his faithful service, his conviction to give his life for the benefit of others to help me to follow Jesus. I share this because our passage in Colossians is all about a minister's purpose and heart. Who has God used to minister to you? Who, perhaps, does God want to use you to minister to? Let's open our Bibles, and we're going to be in Colossians 1, verses 24 through chapter 2, verse 5. And we're going to learn about what Paul's ministry looked like. 1, verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance, of understanding, and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. This is God's word. If there's a big idea here that I think courses through this passage, it's this. It's that ministry is selfless service for the benefit of others. I'll say that again. Ministry is selfless service for the benefit of others. 
Now, in our context of Colossians, Paul has just laid out this amazing, magnificent, beautiful, life-altering picture of who Jesus is as the one in whom everything comes together, who unites all of us as the supreme one, right? And, And in view of this, it changes who we are. It changes our identity. It changes our purpose. It gives us new desires. It reframes our life. It reframes how we suffer, what we're willing to suffer for, what gets us excited, what motivates us, what we long to see in other people, where we find our wealth in. Now, this passage, it breaks into two big points. Um, The first one is a selfless stewardship in verses 24 through 29, and the second one is encouraging guidance in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. And so ministry is selfless service for the benefit of others, and we see that through a selfless stewardship and encouraging guidance. First, let's look at a selfless steward. Paul originally hated Jesus. If there was anyone far away from Christ, it was Paul. You see, he was a rising star, both religiously and politically, in Judaism. He had deep knowledge of the scriptures, and that led him to a conviction that Jesus was the false messiah. Right? He, he hated Jesus. He hated Christians. That led him to be a participant in the first massacre of a Christian, Stephen. Not only that, but Paul has such conviction about it that he goes and he searches out Christians' names to go hunt them down so that he might continue his persecution of the church. And it was on this mission to the road to Damascus that we see that as he's going to carry out this opposition against the church, against Christians, that he encounters Jesus. Right? There's a blinding, bright light And Jesus appears and says, so why are you persecuting me? And everything in his life changed in that moment when he encountered Christ. Right? Instead of Jesus coming and just laying him out and saying, you're done, I'm going to destroy you, Jesus comes and he he shows up in Paul's life and he, he encounters him in love and in grace. And he entrusts to Saul this ministry. He says, well, first, he, uh, he tells um, this guy named Ananias, he says, go and find Paul, which is a little intimidating because Paul had just been killing Christians. So he's like, are you sure about this, Jesus? Like, are you sure this is the guy you want me to go check out? Because if you're wrong, you know, it might be in my head. But he goes and, and he tells, he's, he gives Saul this, Paul this ministry, this stewardship, he says in Acts 9, 15 through 16, he says, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Jesus rescues Paul and graciously gives him this ministry, this stewardship to carry out. This stewardship was the proclamation of the gospel for the glory of God. It was caring for his church. This is what we see in Colossians 124 through 25. He says, For the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. Now that word steward, I think it's a really important word in this passage, that Paul has been given a trust. Right? And what steward means is it means literally to be a manager, an overseer, a caretaker for. And what often it was related to was in the household, is that you would have a steward or someone that was appointed to take care of the affairs of the house. And so Jesus comes and he says, I'm going to bring you in and you are going to help to to take care of the affairs of my church, of my house. And he gives them this unique, this unique ministry, this unique call. But here's the thing. While Paul's call is unique, the idea of stewardship is not. God has given every single one of us as followers of Christ a stewardship, a ministry, 
the ability to, to look out and to selflessly serve others, to help. And so what is your stewardship? Who has God placed in your care that he wants you to look out for, that he wants you to care for, that he wants you to minister, to serve, to build up? Each one of us has this kind of this, this stewardship. And Paul's stewardship, it reframed his life, right? It changed everything about his life. And so that's what this passage just kind of goes through. It shows how this trust that he gave, how it, it reframed all these different areas. And the first thing that it reframed is how he suffered, right? He, he says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. Now, this is one of the more confusing passages in the Bible um, and in Colossians, and there are a lot of questions when we read this. Like, why is Paul able to rejoice in suffering? Does he just like it? Um, What is lacking in Christ's afflictions? Like, what does that mean? How does Paul's suffering fill up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? Well, first, let's talk about why is Paul able to rejoice in his suffering He's able to rejoice in his suffering because he knows the purpose and the goal of it. Paul is writing from prison to these churches, that he, some that he's seen, some that he hasn't. Um, and one of the themes that we see in Paul's letters and in the book of Acts is this theme of rejoicing in the midst of suffering, right? He's sitting in a prison. He's seeing hymns. Why? How can he do this, right? I mean, when I think of suffering in my life, usually rejoicing isn't the next word I think of. And often that's the case for us. So why is Paul able to rejoice? He's able to rejoice, I think, in part because his treasure is Jesus. Jesus is his treasure, not wealth, not health, not freedom, not experiences, not a long life, Jesus. Jesus is what he treasures, and so when these things are taken from his life, he's not not mourning, he's not destitute because those weren't his treasures. Those weren't the things that he valued most. He found his treasure in Christ. Another reason is that Paul sees his suffering as another and even a more profound way of knowing and becoming like Christ. In Philippians 3, 8 through 11, he says this, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in the fellowship of his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul sees suffering not as loss, but as gain. For in it, he becomes like Christ and he shares in the sufferings that Christ did. He rejoices in it because in his suffering, it is then that Christ's power in life is often most evident 2 Corinthians 4.11, he says, For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Richard Wormbrand was, is the founder of Voice of the Martyrs. He was a, a Lutheran pastor that was in Romania in the midst of intense atheistic, communistic persecution. He spent over 14 years in prison and in torture. And he talked about the moments and times where he was at the breaking point, where him and his other believers were at the breaking point. They thought that they could, be, they could endure no more. They could go no further. This was all that they had. He said it was in those moments that Christ's power was most evident in us. He says, a flower, if you bruise it under your feet, rewards you by giving you its perfume. 
Likewise, Christians tortured by the communists rewarded their torture by love. It was as the fragrance of, the fragrance of Christ was spread as they were being broken. It is in our suffering that often we see clearly that Jesus is the treasure that can never be taken from us, that he is most valuable. And often it is the, the moments where his life and his power are most evident through us. This is one of the reasons Paul is able to rejoice in his suffering. Paul also rejoiced in his suffering because he knew that it served others. He was filling up a void that was there. Now, there wasn't a void in Christ's in his sufferings, right? That is abundantly clear throughout the scriptures is that what Jesus accomplished, he accomplished once and for all. He died and his substitutionary sacrificial death was enough. It is finished. Our role is that we trust in his death for us, in his resurrection. So what is the lack that is there, right? The lack that is there is in regards to his church. And what does that mean, It means that the church practically needs to see this suffering lived out, right? When he says, my sufferings, Paul referring to his sufferings, it is what's called a genitive of quality, and it means sufferings like those of Christ. And so what is a void is that they need people to demonstrate and to show in real life, in real flesh, what does it mean to live out and to suffer as Christ suffered, the church doesn't, they, they needed someone to, to live that out, to show them, to be an example for them so they could look and say, that's what it looks like to suffer as Jesus suffered. And so they see, Paul says, you've got many teachers, you have many people that are telling you things to do, but I'm here to fill that void, to demonstrate what it looks like to take up your cross to suffer as Jesus has suffered. And he says, I rejoice in that because my suffering, it's not in vain, it's, it's, it's not worthless it has purpose. My suffering is in part to help you, that you might endure the suffering that will come your way with purpose and with meaning. I believe that Paul would encourage us in the midst of our suffering that we wouldn't waste it. He says suffering is an opportunity to make much of Christ. Don't waste our suffering. He, he endured it, but he, he boasted in Christ in the midst of it. And so he can rejoice in his suffering because his suffering was in service to others. Another profound motive that leads Paul to rejoice in his suffering is the hope of glory, and this gets me so excited. It's in verse 27. Paul mentions this profound mystery. He says, it is Christ in us, the hope of glory. Now, what is the hope of glory? What is it that Paul is talking about, and how can it lead us to rejoice in our suffering? This has changed my, I mean, this changed my life. Romans 8.18, it says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. In the rest of that passage in Romans 18, Paul goes on and he says, listen, creation is subjected to futility. It is under this curse. It is as if it's longing to be free. And it sees the, the children of God as they come to know Jesus and they're experiencing this first taste of freedom. The whole creation looks and it's longing. It's on the edge of childbirth, right? It's like it's, it's waiting for this new life to just break forth. And he says, this glory We're going to behold it, but not only are we going to see this this beauty of this brand new resurrected creation, not only are we going to see the splendor of it, but he says we will be it. We will be a part of it. God's resurrection power will come in us, and it it will shed off all that is old, all that is dead, all that is broken, the sin that entangles us, the brokenness that we see. It will fall. It will be gone, and we will stand in resurrection power. 
and beauty. Now, marriage can change you. I didn't start out being a Disney lover. Um, That wasn't my choice of movies, but I got married to my wife, and she's a Disney fanatic, and so I started to watch Disney. And so, spoiler alert, if you like Beauty and the Beast, or if you haven't seen Beauty and the Beast, we're about to talk about it. So it's gonna, it's gonna ruin you if you haven't seen it. If you haven't seen it, I'm sorry. It's been around for a while, so it's kind of on you, not on me. Um, But, but the story of Beauty and Beast, it's Right, it's about a prince that, because of his selfishness and his vanity, he curses himself and his entire castle. And this castle is it's subjected, it's, it's put in frustration. It's under this curse, longing for the day that it might be set free. Right? And the only thing that can set it free is for the prince's hardness of heart, for his selfishness and vanity to be melted by love. It has to be changed. It has to be this inward transformation that happens inside of him. And we see at the end of the movie, it comes as, as the beast gives himself for Belle. He sacrifices himself to give himself for her. And it seems, right, that the petal has fallen. It seems as if there's no hope, that nothing can say time has run out. And it seems as if the curse is going to be there forever. Darkness is won. Hope is gone. And it's in this moment that this beauty and brilliance comes forth and the beast is raised up. And all of the hideousness, the ugliness just vanishes from him. And following him, the entire castle is raised from this darkness, and it's just brilliant and beautiful. And, and it just melts my heart because I, I can't see that and not think about how much a greater reality we have in Christ and what is going to happen in the resurrection. All the, the, the death and the pain and the heartache of this world is going to melt, and we will see beauty, and we will be a part of that beauty. And Paul looks at that and he says, how can that cause us to rejoice? And they get excited about what God is doing. He says, we are the first fruits of that. God is starting to do that work in us. And it leads us to rejoice in the suffering. It's so good. He says that in 2 Corinthians 4, 17 through 18. This light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So not only did Paul's stewardship, it reframed his suffering and led him to rejoice in this difficult time that he was facing, but it reframed how he approached the scriptures. Paul's ministry centered on God's word. He knew God's word was powerful, right? That God used his inspired word to change and to mature his people. And, but his conviction was that he said, I am here to make God's word fully known. God's entire word. And it seems Paul's teachings, Paul didn't just, you know, say, what do I want to teach? It didn't come from his own imagination, his own mind, what, what current events were going on, 10 steps to a better life, right? Paul didn't just kind of come up with his teachings. He, his teachings were rooted and grounded in the scripture. And this is the conviction behind all biblical preaching, that God has spoken in his word and the role of the pastor, the role of the preacher is to help make known and clear what God has given us in his word. Proclaiming the full word of God means showing how Jesus is throughout all of God's story, that he is the center. It's not, when you look at Paul's preaching, it wasn't just to give up, give moral examples from the Old Testament or to teach the Old Testament history. It was to show how Jesus is the centerpiece of every story of the Bible. And that like a beautiful diamond, how you turn it ever so slightly and you see a different beauty inside of it. Paul is turning the scriptures over and over, showing the manifold beauty in Jesus, of Jesus in each story. 
Now, Paul proclaimed the scriptures for the good of others, right? It would have been easier for him not to talk about Jesus as king because the Romans probably would have thrown him in prison or executed him. It would have been easier for Paul if he didn't really talk about the resurrection when he was talking to the Greeks. They might not have sneered at him and, and laughed at him and rejected him. It might have been easier for Paul not to talk about circumcision or the law when he was encountering the Jews. They might not have beat him so often or thrown him out of the town. But Paul had a conviction about preaching the whole word of God and not just picking the parts that he liked or that were convenient for him because he knew that the whole word of God was needed for the whole people of God to mature them, that they might grow into the image of God. Now, not only was it his preaching, but Paul knew that making the whole word of God known was part of his life. It was why he gave himself fully to his people. First Thessalonians, or, um, First Thessalonians 2 Thessalonians 2.8, he says, so being affectionately desirous of you, we decide not only to share the gospel of God with you, but our own lives, having become so very dear to us. Paul's stewardship, it reframed his understanding of the scriptures. It also reframed his relationships before Christ, Paul had a clear delineation of the kinds of people he hung out with, right? As a Jew, Gentiles were almost in a different caste system. And so they were to be talked to, associated with, maybe even converted, but they were never family. They were never to be included in the most intimate parts of your life. Now, he talked about this great mystery, which is Christ in us. And this, what Christ in us has accomplished is creating one people, whereas before there was division. Paul's ministry was one of unity, of bringing two parties that were at factions and at war and, and totally apart back into one. And hear this, what he says in Ephesians two thirteen through 14. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. In verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God. God's stewardship given to Paul changed his relationships, specifically who he spent time with and how he loved them. The message of the gospel is one of unity in Christ. It doesn't matter your background, your gender, your race, your sin, your brokenness, for when we come to Christ, he makes us one family. He unites us together through a love and a devotion to him. This unity is hard though, right? It sounds great on the surface. Yes, we love unity, but it's hard, why? Because uh, we think differently. We have different perspectives. We have different emotions. We have different experiences. And so if you've ever actually fought for unity together, it's difficult. Sticking through and growing, but it's part of our maturity. Paul's unity, it wasn't uniformity. It wasn't saying, well, everybody just needs to act the same way, think the same way, dress the same way. It wasn't uniformity. Paul's Unity wasn't at the expense of their diversity, but it was in the midst of it. He brought a people that were different, and he said, we are coming together as one because of our common love for Jesus Christ. It was, it was Christ's grace that allowed them to live together in unity. Paul's stewardship had also reframed his message. The message Paul proclaimed was Christ alone. 1 Corinthians 4, 5, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness is shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 
This message wasn't just for some, but everyone. He makes it specifically clear in this verse. He says everyone three times to emphasize that he didn't just select those he thought were likely to respond to the gospel. Well, they've got a background like this, and they look like this, and they act like that, so I think they might be open to hearing about Jesus and then sharing with that. He says this message is for everyone. It's to be put on the top shelf of our lives so that it might be seen and known by all those that come in contact with us. Now, when Paul proclaimed Christ, he didn't just give the same random message to each single person as if it was a cookie-cutter presentation. When you read and you see Paul's ministry, he listened. He understood the background of people. He, he wanted to relate to the different people he encountered. And as he listened to them, then he proclaimed the gospel. And in that proclamation, he says that he, he both warns and he teaches. Right? He warns and he teaches he warned of God's righteous judgment against our sin. He warned of our sin and the curse that it brings on our lives. He warned of false teachers that were out to deceive God's people. He warned of Satan and his schemes who seeks to lead us to be ineffective and unfruitful. He taught us of God's presence, of his value and his beauty seen through Jesus. He taught the grace of God found in Jesus' death for our sin. He taught the power of the Spirit in us because of Christ's resurrection. And he taught the calling to live under King Jesus leading rather than our own. All that Paul warned of and taught was to help lead us to maturity. This was the goal of Paul's warning and teaching. It was maturity. It wasn't a crowd. It wasn't being liked. It wasn't having a larger budget, but rather on God's people growing in maturity into the image of Christ. And this should be the heart behind all ministry to help us to grow into the likeness of Christ. This growth, though, it's not always easy. We need to be warned and we need to be taught. It's what helps us to grow out of infancy and to come up into maturity. But it's not fun being warned, is it? I've had people in my life that have loved me enough to come and to warn me about areas in my life that are leading me to destruction, that are leading me to, um, to hurt myself or to hurt others or to lead me away from Christ. And in the moment, those, those conversations aren't the most joyful, right? I'm not like, yes, please come and talk to me about my errors. Just come and talk to me about my sins. But those have been some of the most fruitful conversations in my life because they have led to maturity. Is that we need people that love us enough, not just to tell us what we want to hear. We need people who love us, that will be honest with us, that will help point us to Christ. And so Paul says that in his teaching, he is both warning and he is teaching. Now let us receive these this kind of ministry with a humble heart because it takes boldness for someone to do that. Let us come with humility and say, I, I want that. I want somebody that loves me enough to come in and to speak truth in my life in a gracious way so that I might see things that I'm blind to. Paul's stewardship last, it reframed his work. He toiled hard. Right? He says, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. The picture is one of an athlete toiling and struggling to overcome the pain, the difficulty, and the challenges that they're facing. Paul's ministry wasn't easy. It wasn't always fun. It brought lonely nights, beatings, shipwrecks, anxiety, frustrations. But it also brought joy, purpose, hope, love, as he gave himself for God's people God's work in Paul was seen through his continued work to proclaim Christ. It wasn't that Paul always woke up in the morning and said, man, I've had my Jesus coffee. I'm just jazzed about everything right now. In fact, you see the opposite. 
Paul on his knees begging before God, please, I need you to work in me. I need your energy. I need your strength. Help me to persevere. Help me to endure. And he says the sign that God was working in him, that he was powerfully working in him, was that he was continuing to be faithful to God's call. He was continuing to proclaim Christ. Ministry, we see, is serving for the benefit of others. It's this selfless stewardship that Paul talked about. And now in verse 2, 1 through 5, he practically shows that ministry to the Colossians, right? He gives them encouraging guidance. Don't worry, this point is shorter than the last one. Paul starts by encouraging this church that he's never met. He encourages the Colossian church by telling them that he's struggling for them and for everyone that he hasn't seen face to face. He encouraged them to say, listen, you're loved enough to struggle for. And this is the gospel message. Romans 5, 6 through 8 says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He says, be encouraged. Not only are you loved enough to suffer for, but you're loved enough that someone died for. Be encouraged. Paul gives them, then gives them guidance. He says that the true riches that you are longing for, the true wealth, they are found in Jesus. That having assurance and knowledge of Christ, it brings greater wealth and treasure than anything in this world. Now, as a financial advisor, I encounter people from all walks of life with different incomes, and I can definitely tell you the wealthiest people that I've encountered aren't the ones with the biggest bank accounts. I know Christ's presence, it brings a wealth that money can't. It brings profound love. It brings contentment, joy, peace, faith, hope. Paul guides them, and and he would guide us to see that your treasure, what you should value above all things, it it is Christ. He then guides them to see that Jesus is the source and foundation of all knowledge and wisdom. The answer to life's deepest questions find their answer in Christ. Who are we? Why are we here? What are we made for? What's my purpose? How can I find joy in meeting? In Christ, there are deep wells of knowledge and wisdom. Paul guides us to this truth, but he also warns us. He warns us to be careful, for there are people who will try to persuade us to look elsewhere for that wisdom and that knowledge. They will say that Christ isn't enough that you need to try this, you need to follow these steps or add this into your life and then you'll truly be wise and understand how life works. Paul warns and urges us to not move away from Christ, that he is sufficient, that he is enough. And he ends our passage with encouragement. He says he's with them, that though he can't be there physically, he's in prison after all. He's there with them in spirit through Christ. He stands with them. He's for them. He rejoices over them because they are standing firm in one faith. They are in good order as one body. As we close, I just want to remind, I hope that this, this big idea sticks with me, that ministry is selfless service for the benefit of others. That God has given each of us a ministry and ability to serve others for his glory and for their good. But I hope that first and foremost you see that all of this is culminated and found in Jesus and his ministry towards you. We see that he suffered for us. He brought us into his family. His message was one of truth and one of grace for our benefit. His work was difficult and hard, but it brought all of us together as one family. I pray that you receive first and foremost the ministry of Christ towards you, 
and that by receiving his ministry, you in turn want to share in that ministry and selflessly serve others. Pray with me. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the beauty of Christ and for the power of the gospel. And I pray that we would receive your ministry of grace and of truth in our lives, that we would want to follow you, to trust you. And so I pray for those that are here that perhaps don't know you, God, that they would, that your word would just have its power, it would work, and then it would bring them conviction to say, I, I see the way I'm living and it's not working. I, I know that you've called me for more. I know that there's this emptiness that you want to fill in me. And that they would make that step of trust, of faith in you, Jesus. And I, I pray for those of us that are here that know you. God, I pray that you would just do, develop deeper maturity and conviction that we would truly believe that it is more blessed to give than to receive, that we would give our lives rather than try to hold on to them. Continue to convince us of these truths. We love you. It's in your name we pray, Christ. Amen.